Hello. 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 How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I got to tell you, this has been, um, since the first time I met you, I have wanted to interview you. Have you tried it with a Brit before? Uh, uh, yeah, I think we, we did. I think we had an Aussie. I think we did a, a someone from, from England. We've right. gotten, and, and then we've had some accents that are, you know, were really challenging to understand. We had Andre Arvlosky, who was from Belarus. Right. That was, that was, that was challenging. But I mean, I, you know, I, I think you're going to be just fine. <laughs> well, I thought I hit it off that way. Most people in the U.S. will say, are you Australian before they assume I'm British? That happens all the time, you say. All the time. I can't, I don't hear that, but I'm always good with accents. It's probably because you now know me, but also I went through the world backwards. So I, I am now sitting in front of you from living in China, not from living in the U.K. So my accents are a little bit mixed up. Well, I, you know, I think that's a perfect place to start because, I, you know, one of the things I think people will be fascinated about this is is your route to becoming CEO and your route towards the fashion industry and I think so often people have these um, you know grandiose dreams that they go straight to New York and mm -hmm. straight to LA and they're you know they're mm -hmm. designing and they're on runways and all this when when you after you finished school man you went to China can you talk about that process for you? A little I bit? did. I mean, my route to, be to becoming a CEO is somewhat weird because I don't think I've told anyone this, but you know when you get a birthday cake and you blow out the candle and you make one wish? Yeah. My one wish for as long as I can remember was to always be a CEO. And I can't tell you why because in my head I just know that's what I wanted to be. And it wasn't your dad or your mom. And oh, it was definitely from that. Yeah, I mean, it was you, definitely from that. I mean, going to work at nine years old in in the distribution garment industry and watching them work and that work ethic. I was. I grew up in a very unusual household. So I, <laughs> I had I had two hardworking parents, um, and then I had another parent. So I had a nanny that also helped raise me. In addition to my parents, because they were full time workers in the fashion industry. And it was inspiring and amazing and um, somewhat surreal because my childhood wasn't quite as normal as my other children and friends in class. Yeah. You know, parent-teacher evenings were often spent with the kind of whole premise of, well, if mum and dad were around more, then, you know, X, Y, and Z would happen. But, you know, in my mind, I was just inspired by my parents going out and doing what they did every day. And I thought, one day I want to do that. And so... I always knew where I wanted to be in terms of industry, and I always knew that I wanted to eventually try it out as being a CEO, which that, was unusual. That's fanat that's, well, it's, it's almost like David Ebershoff, right? I mean, mm -hmm. from the time he was four years old, he knew he wanted to write. Mm -hmm. And you know, I've met guys in the teams that from the time they were five or six, they wanted to be Navy right. SEALs, right? And so it's one of these, I think, profound blessings to know at an early age, but it it also can be pretty ominous, mm -hmm. I'm assuming, too, huh? Um, it, it's strange because you realize that at some point you have to get there. And, <laughs> and, and then, you know, I, I remember, you know, going back as kind of early as 97 or 98 and going to work for my parents and, and really trying to understand, okay, well, I'm going to start from the bottom. I'm going to answer the telephone and I'm going to see how much pocket money I can earn from this. And then, you know, at some point, am I going to be interested in fashion? And that was really, you know, 13, 14 years old okay, I became very interested in fashion. Was I, it the shift in adolescence and the recognition of identity is affiliated with how we look? 
Mm-hmm. And was it that was it that profound, or was it just because the the indoctrination process from your family, it just seemed like the right way to go? Well, probably, but one of maybe three things. There was this historical kind of ancestry around the fashion industry, which was always kind of inherent in who I was. I loved fashion ever since I was a kid, so I knew that I like liked certain things, certain colors, certain ways of dressing, but. I think when you're going through adolescence, a few things are changing. One, you're trying to you're trying to create your own persona, and that was really reflected in how I chose at some point when I was able to what I was going to wear. And then at the other point, you probably find sexuality plays a right. part in that. And as an younger um, adolescent teenager trying to figure out, you know, well, at some point I'm going to have to say whatever year that may be that I'm gay to my parents. Mm-hmm. That was my earliest way of kind of hinting, but also expressing myself and who I was and my sexuality through the way that I chose to put clothes together. Wow, that's really fascinating. Because, you know, with 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 Eric, you know, those that, and, and this is my brother for listeners, and we'll have him on eventually too, but... Um, you know, the whole idea with that sense of confidence and expression in his identity was through how he looked and how it made him feel good. And, you know, as as that battle was going on emotionally and mentally in his head, it's like, right. man, I can gain this really great strength by, you know, and I remember, man, he, he would sit there and his hair would be great and he would pick the right clothes going into school and he... You know, he it was just, and I'm like, wow, this is really different, you know, because he was also this athlete as yeah. well, too. But I can imagine that when you live in, I can't imagine on a ah, little bit of identity crisis when I left the teams and became a civilian and not knowing where you fit in. But I, I can't imagine it as a, as a, as a young man, as a, in your adolescence. So were your, was it, were your parents just like, whoa, this is just, he just loves fashion. It's the industry and it just makes sense. There's nothing. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember my father at one point was given a discount card to go and shop at a company called Top Man, which was the kind of men's equivalent of Top Shop in the UK, which was back in its heyday, the Zara kind of equivalent. And it was so interesting because I, I would say, okay, well, I'm going to go up and choose what I want to wear. And he was so excited to just use it with me that as a bonding exercise, I picked up all this stuff and I put it together and no one ever questioned what I was putting on because it was just reflective of who I was. Maybe it was a bit crazy at the time. Right. But doesn't every kid go through that? And I, uh, I dressed as crazy as I could be. Right. So maybe there was a bit of a kind of, well, that's just him being a kid and he'll grow out of it or whatever that may be. But at some point, my kind of light bulb moment was, shopping in in I think with my mother at at 13 and choosing for the first time not to go down this kiddish route of of trying on clothes but trying on clothes that adults were wearing Mm -hmm. and I think when she looked at me I was picking out outfits that were reminiscent of people who were a lot older more sophisticated and had a taste and a flair for I think precision and that's what I wanted to do I wanted to show that potentially I wasn't you know, a 13, 14 year old, but that I just wanted to accelerate my way through kid adulthood and into adulthood and then be able to express myself the right way. Well, I think it's fascinating for me when I, when I listen to you tell that, that, you know, your sense of refinement and your sense of, of that strength that is indicative to dressing really nice, being put together and how people react to that. Right. I mean, it's, it's 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 something that you know we take immense pride in in the military as well too, right? It's like 
you come in and you're all you're squared away your uniform looks mm -hmm. impeccable mm -hmm. and it and it's it's indicative of your focus and how good of a soldier sailor airman marine is and right. for, for you it's like no this is indicative of who i am as a person and my goal and aspirations to to move up and to yeah. become that ceo you know i th i think putting clothes on first of all for me first and foremost are an expression of myself and they always have been really and so no matter how i feel whether i'm on my own with you know friends at work i dress for me and second to that there is some part of it where i know that with what i will put together if i come into contact with someone who's never met me before it's almost like it kind of bemuses someone so hmm. it creates a sense of I kind of, well, what's this guy about and what's his story and how unusual is it going to be or, or not? But I do think that it provides that kind of question mark um, exposure to someone who's ever met me before. And I use that to my advantage. I, I think that's brilliant. I've always been a fan of like, you know, I remember when I first started getting immersed into music that was outside of, of, of my age. Right. And, and I remember the first big influence for me was Jimi Hendrix and he had this really flamboyant flair to him. You know, he wore women's blouses. He, mm -hmm. he had, you know, he wear the, you know, the, these wild jackets and hats and these, you know, beautiful flowing bell bottom red pants and these scarves, man. And, and it was just like, whoa, there's something, I want to say it's more than theatrical because it's affiliated also with his mentality. Mm -hmm. There's a direct correlation to that. Yeah. And so did you find as, as now, as you were, um, coming to terms or coming to grips, or I, I don't know what the proper way to describe with your sexuality and where you were, you're like, wow, I can really gain confidence and I can really, uh, express myself and who I am and how I think and how I threw my fashion as well too. I honestly thought that the industry was going to be the the catapult for me eventually fitting into my own skin wow that, that, that's that's how i approached it so and, and maybe I, i've never really articulated this to to anyone but the way that i felt growing up as a young guy questioning sexuality with two very very open honest parents who both see you know gay men and women in the industry day in day out I was exposed to that from a very young age and it was always very accepting and the moral attitude that my parents had, I will never forget because even back in the 80s and 90s when everything was so different to the world we're living in today, mm -hmm. I felt like they had no stigma attached to anything, but it's, it still didn't help me. I, wow. was, I was very much um, in a shell of myself for many years trying to protect, I think, my own message. And I felt that if I was an outwardly gay character in the industry from a family of successful industry specialists themselves, mm -hmm. that maybe my story would become a bit more of um, a caricature. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I felt that in addition to that, my religion wasn't necessarily going to help support that. I was from a Jewish neighborhood. Um, I had a very kind of close-knit community of Jewish family friends it just wasn't the done thing at the time that mm -hmm. you had a gay son from, you know, a fashion industry family who was going to grow up and, you know, not continue the family line of 
doing what they did in terms of not going into the industry, but in terms of settling down and having kids potentially the same way they did. And, right. you know, putting their skid, your, your kids through school the same way that they did in the same vicinity of where you grew up in. And it was a very kind of close-knit community that I would never question, but I knew at the time it wasn't for me. Wow. And so I felt that I was in this skin, in this shell, and I had to wait and earn my time and earn my keep differently. And my very, very base denominator for how I felt about myself was you know what, you're lucky on so many ways that, you know, outside of this wonderful life you have, it's going to get a bit dicey for a while. And in that period, you're going to have to dedicate exactly what you need to out of your mind, your body and your soul to getting where you want to be before you then tell your parents that you're gay. Because if you're not going to be able to give them the things that potentially conform to their friends in terms of you know, young family, mm-hmm. you know, settling down with a woman and getting married, whatever that may mean, maybe you can give them something else. And that something else can be a success story in the way that you go to work, in the way that you show up in the industry and in the way that you are successful because you know that that's very important to them. Yeah. And so I always set out with that goal to fulfill that bucket list activity, check that box and then tell them. Well, let's, let's, let's just, transition because I, you know, I, I think one of the things that I think can often happen with, um, you know, our, our sexual preferences or our gender identification or whatever, it becomes the totality of the story. Mm-hmm. And it really detracts from the, the base of what everything else mm-hmm. is. Right. And it, and I find it now it be, it's becoming, you know, it's, it's almost so extreme. Like, it's like, Hey, just let's, Put it over here for a side and let's look at the person and what they are and what yeah. it's so it's 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 really fascinating to me that you're like all right i'm gonna generate increased strength by the success of in the mastery of my craft when when did you so obviously there's i'm willing to bet from what you witnessed and being around the industry you knew the trajectory of becoming a ceo you knew the steps you had to go when was it, you know, in your teens or early, early twenties that you were like, okay, I figured this out. I know the steps and this is what I'm going to do to become really, really proficient at it. Because I got to tell you, man, and I've known in some insane hard workers in this planet, James, and you're in the top handful of people that I know that work their asses off, man. And it's remarkable. Well, it's the, one, it's the only way I know how to do things. I mean, I, I started at the bottom. So whatever head start I got in the industry was simply the fact that I knew that I wanted to be in it as opposed to getting a pedestal into it. I knew that I wanted to be into it. And I guess you could say my, my first moment of really kind of the aha of I can do this. Um, I, I went to do... Um, I was actually coerced away from the industry at one point and I was 17 years old and I was about to go and start work on a building site making tea for, you know, a bunch of contractors trying to work out if I should be in real estate. And the night before I did that, I was at an event and I got an opportunity to go and do um, work experience at a company, a British brand called Ted Baker. Mm -hmm. And the next morning, Monday morning, I phoned up the uh, real estate firm and said, sorry, I'm not going to do this. And I apologize in advance, but I've had a great opportunity I can't turn down. And I turned up at this company called Ted Baker. I was still just in, in, in the equivalent of high school in the UK. And I started there and I didn't leave the company for another 13 years. 13 years? Yes. 
and, and, and describe the first few years and what that looked like. Because one of the things that I learned when I, I, I had a great opportunity to interview Peter Berg, the director who had directed Marcus's movie, Lone Survivor, and he talks about those early days out here when he was a gaffer, he was this, he did every single position <laughs> in order not just to climb the ladder, but to have a comprehensive understanding of the industry. Right. I, I think understanding industry that I was in, I was able to go through every division. I started off doing everything from steam ironing clothes and wow. cleaning up trims and all the basics you can be, you could you could imagine. And in the industry as it was back then, I mean, you didn't really get a look in. And unless you were gonna be kind of you know, in and out. No one really cared about this kind of, you know, 17-year-old is going to come and do a week's work experience. <laughs> and then walk away. Right, yeah, yeah, right. Quit. I, I never quit. I, I never quit. I, and, and as much as I hated it, and I remember going home every night, and I was probably somewhat tearful when I spoke to my friends about it, because the people, some of them could be really mean. I bet. And dismissive and catty. And, and none of the ways that I lead my organization, but that was the way it was. And I thought, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and you pick up yourself, and you go and do it again, and you prove to them, that even if you heat it you're going to be the one person that doesn't give in and the one person that succeeds in a different way yeah and you kind of have this stiff british british upper lip about the whole thing <laughs> and that's what i did and it was kind of like this attitude adjustment in myself to say the first and foremost thing about believing you can do something is knowing that you're going to get through it no matter how bad it may seem on the way in wow because whatever you're going to get out of it is going to be so much more better or so much better further down the line is that from your mom or dad or both or your your aunts uncles is there i i think my i mean my my father came from a very tough unprivileged background and okay. built everything himself and my mother the same two very separate backgrounds uh not from privilege and, and they did it and they succeeded and that to me was always in, in inherited That's into my so judgment cool. but I, I was in a company that was very very um, macho boyish it's it was, one of the old school british company yeah. the, the fashion yeah. companies isn't it yeah, yeah. like nine, 1988 it, it was it was incepted and um you know at the time it was a menswear business but very kind of if i say brit pop era or like you know like oasis right blah, that type of ilk that was what it was favorite like that brit pop era was kind of synonymous with ted baker it was the kind of blokish brand right. and it was successful for that reason so it was an unusual step for me because it wasn't like truly it was the kind of fashion industry as some of the listeners may perceive it to be it was like right this is the cool british kind of masculine edge brand and it's got a bit of a character and quirky personality to it. Wow. As a gay man there, I was probably, and I wasn't out at the time, I, I was probably in a, in a little subset of the culture there. Right. And I thought it was so interesting to see this kind of, this brand immerse itself in the industry, but not, not necessarily represent what everyone else out there was doing in the industry. I, I, I bet, but, but in, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's, that's what makes great brands, right? Is that they... They fit in, but at the same time, they can create this subset, this niche, right? Yeah. This niche of, of, of a look or a line or even a collection that just pulls them out and then they can come back in and then right. pulls them out and right. comes back in. I mean, the, the art of doing that is to keep them as a lifer. If you can keep someone attached to a brand because they really believe in you, it's because you've done everything from designing credible product to marketing it that when you put it on your body, you do feel like it's expressing yourself. Yeah. And, and I had this great teacher while I was there, this CEO that I got to kind of learn from. I was this kind of little disciple of 
Ray Kelvin, who was the CEO of Ted Baker, and the Ted Baker character was synonymous to who he was. Really? And I got to see it and learn it from Did he suck you in real quick? Oh, I was sucked in from day one. <laughs> and well, almost... Was he... Was, was, was he how long did he last where he was, you know, like, my God, this guy's a, a giant in the industry to where it closed the gap where you started going, I can do that. I, I mean, I'd say uh, it, it, it had a large betting in period. So if I if I was doing this in my years, let's call it year one, I was probably a good eight, nine years in before I actually knew that there was even potential in me to get to anything like his level. Wow, and, that's and, powerful. That's a powerful yeah. statement people don't understand now, is that you have to make the investment. Right. It, it takes time. Nothing that's great goes fast, no. right? I went through college while I was in that company. Wow. So I was learning so much about myself at the same time that I wasn't necessarily focused that that was my goal tomorrow. I knew that I was going to have the long game at play. Mm -hmm. And so while I went through college, I was still working with the company. I would do that in my free time. And when I eventually left college, I graduated in 2005. I was in my head. I had almost cultivated this idea that I needed to be an overachiever for my age and that I needed to be on a different path to my peers because I needed to accelerate myself. But you've had that since you were a child, though. That's what your mom said. You've always had that persona, that character trait. But it's different when you realize that now you're doing it. So oh, okay. like being okay. told that one day that could be your path is one thing. And then you're right. When you hit the go button, you don't quite know you've actually hit it, but then you're in it and you realize, okay, I'm now... I'm now on that journey and what do I have to do as I'm going through to getting to the end result? Because I don't know when the end result is because does it ever really end? Like no, even now I'm no, sitting here telling you. At all, at all. Yeah, I mean, my, I'm in my first CEO role, but at the time, you know, I knew that the amount of work I was going to put in was going to be a sacrifice to my personal life. I went through, I think, at least uh, a four or five year period where I didn't take any time off. In not fact, one, not, 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 not nothing. One. I would I would get up from my work days um, Monday to Friday, and then on Saturday and the weekend, I would go and drive anywhere, take a train, and I'd go work in stores. I, I would be working in stores. I would be- All over, everywhere. I, everywhere, all over the UK, and I loved it. Really? Why? Why? Well, it. Was it the customer contact? Was it just being able to see- how just because you have a brand doesn't mean it's the same brand in the same state in the same place right and the differences of clientele and your your was it all that was it the complexities or was it just the experience it was a few different things i i think at the, at the base of it, I was very, very excited about the fact that I was learning so much. Yeah. And everything that I've done in my entire career and still do to this day, you get up and you you want to learn something from Amen. the best. So I was learning from the best in whatever area of that business I was in. And going to see people interact with customers made everything that was done during the working week seem real. Because you're not necessarily sitting in an office to kind of learn how people are going to be emotionally tactile with the product until you're looking at it firsthand on the front line right so it's probably the same for you when you're learning things in terms of preparation for potential combat yeah it's very different when you're learning it textbook style to when you're actually engaging it it's night and day it's right. it's you know there yes you 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 learn these basics right you perform the basics to perfection in the hopes that when you're under duress you're going to be able to recall that in a rote manner right right and that's what it is but you have to do the reps and how can you ever conceivably talk about how you're going to educate and train other people unless you've been through it yourself. Amen. So for me, my version of the front line was the retail stores. That's awesome. And, and, and I was, 
armed and dangerous because the moment How I realized so? the moment I realized that I understood the emotional reaction or the scientific reaction to people integrating themselves with product and let's talk about the environment that. let's talk about that a little bit so what what was your, when did you first was it somebody saying hey watch the way they go through a store watch when they pick something up how they look at it how they put back how they touch it if they hang it up to themselves with who was teaching you to watch these little nuanced things every person in that company that's cool and and, and it wasn't necessarily like i had to be taught it you just had to watch and observe and and i was talking to the customers and watching them put on product was half the battle understanding the brand was the rest of it and then the experience okay the service experience so it's 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 the customer themselves and 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 because you have this small window of evaluation when they walk through your front door right? right and so you have to get good at that and developing that rapport to get them to want to follow through with mm -hmm. the purchase right but it's also understanding like you said the totality of the brand and so right. that feeds into the sale huh that feeds into the sale and so as so does, so do every every one person that comes into contact with that customer via the product or in front of them when they're physically there every part of that is a, is an art and wow. growing to growing up in the industry was one thing but my parents were not on the brand side they were on the manufacturing side this was the first time i'd been in brand world and I was truly passionate about brand and I was learning from the best. Yeah. And the Ted Baker brand almost was the brand that people love to hate because no one could quite understand why it worked and why it worked so well. Okay. And it was probably the most successful export of its time in terms of, you know, you think about the Burberries and the worlds of Mulberry potentially coming out of the UK. Ted Baker was through thick and thin the, the, the reliable British brand. Wow. And it was a publicly traded um, brand. So... The investors loved it. How soon did they become publicly traded? They would they were uh, floated in ninety seven. So okay, so per, good, about a, nine years, ten years. That's it. Yeah. So so they they, they were done in they were floated in ninety seven. I joined in two thousand two. So for me, you know, I, that's all I knew while I was there. But everything was done to better the customer and better the stock share price. Right. So it, it was a really interesting position to be in. I I looked at all these people as my family. That's the, cool. These guys. Did the rest my, of them do the same thing? Yeah. Yeah, I felt honestly like I belonged. Wow. And, and I felt very, very, very passionate about the brand, the people, wow. and what I was learning. And it was in my blood, to be honest. I couldn't distinguish between myself and the brand and the people. And some may see that as a bit of a sign of um, weakness. I don't and at all. It's the most... It was an odd position to be in. It's the most powerful thing that we have, right? The closer we get emotionally, cognitively towards whatever we're passionate about, the better we have, the better opportunity we right. have to adapt, learn, and then become proficient at right. whatever that is. And it taught me a few things around how to not do the job and how to do the job. Yeah. And and some of the things I carry with me to this day. And and the, probably the, the earliest thing I recall doing was working my butt off to the point where no one could ever do the job better than me. That's awesome. And I remember my boss at the time and the CEO and my kind of guide figure telling me, if you don't ever allow your team members and your teammates to believe that they can single-handedly drive you to success, you can't ever be a good boss. Ever. And you can't be a good leader. And I'd never thought about it like that. How come? How come you never, you never I, I honor? Because let me ask you this, and, I, and I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm fascinated by these steps 
when now you're the best in the organization, everybody identifies you as one of the, the, the go-getters, you're working crazy hours, you're putting, you understand the brand, you, you make the connection to the CEO, and then all of a sudden that mentoring process begins to uh, ferment itself, right? And now it's growing. And then, you know, obviously, you know, within that, it's, it's one thing to say, I, I want to be a CEO, but the most difficult aspect of every CEO I've ever talked to or interviewed or worked for or anything, every, every admiral or CEO of an organization, they've all said the hardest thing is managing your people by far. Right. And, and that's, that's true. And I go through that. I'd say every day is, is, is 60% management of people, emotion, context, intelligence, and, and wit. And, and part of that never changed. I, I didn't realize that. I think especially in your in your younger years when you're learning on the job, that just takes time. Intuition and understanding yes. that. You can't teach that in no. terms of, okay, here's the textbook response. Go learn it and replicate it. Unless you've witnessed the strengths and the weaknesses from the way you integrate in a business, you can't be a great leader because you've got to fail a million times over before you understand wow. that that is the route to success. Yes, and failure I, is the route oh to success. My God. It's so funny oh with one God. of the girls. You know, one of the rules is failure leads to success, mm. and and they always look at me like doesn't make any oh. sense, but it's so true, isn't it? Oh, and it and it is, and it's dangerous because when you realize that that's the only way, you've actually gone through the failures not because you intended to, but because they happen. Yeah, and. On the outside looking in and in hindsight, it's all very reflective and it makes you so much stronger. Wow. At the time though, it's one of those things where you think that the moment you fail or the moment that you're kind of caught in a position, that your life is ending. Yeah. And I couldn't I couldn't understand the difference between life, work, James Miller, Ted Baker, my wow. culture, my career, everything. It was completely intertwined. I, I know that feeling immensely i mean where you become what you do you become it is who you are and it's a beautiful space to be in if you're driven to achieve the top levels yeah. right if it if if you're not then and you don't have that that pathway can become very destructive yeah. to every other aspect and my life. friends thought i was crazy i'm sure crazy i mean they're all out there partying enjoying themselves and in their first jobs and there i was seven days a week going at it and and I didn't have the social aspect of what my peers had. They all supported me immensely, but I never necessarily thought that um, I was doing what every early 21, 22, 23-year-old was doing on a Saturday night or at the weekend, and I was exhausted. And at some point, I remember it being around 2009, I remember I'd just gone off on a trip to France and I had done like a 14 city trip in about three days to try and find a solution to open up locations for Ted Baker with a French retailer in the, you know, at that point in time. And I came back and I got suspended. You got suspended I from got suspended the from, company? from the company and I got suspended and... For what was the reason? What was the rationale? I mean, effectively, the rationale was working too hard. You, you got to commend them for identifying that there is such right. a thing as burnout. Right, right. Well, that that knocked me for six. I was, I was. You're like, wait oh. a minute. How am I getting in, in trouble for working too hard? I, I couldn't. I wouldn't even say that I adjusted it like that. I was like, this is my life. You, you may as well take my life away from me. Wow. And and I was, 
I found myself in this odd position of just not knowing who I was because the moment you took away the company, I didn't know who I was. And that was an amazing kind of odd position to be in, thinking to yourself, okay, here I am now, I'm an adult. Yeah. And I don't know who I am because I've thrown everything at this. And if it all fell away now, I don't have, and I don't believe I know what I'm about. And that was a real adjustment because I'd say the last 10 years, because that was 10 years ago, have taught me so much more about who I am because I've allowed that to happen. Whereas at that period of time, in the kind of mindset of there's the finish line, go for it and just run, you never realize how much you stand to lose until you sit back and say, hold on a second, there's so much more to life than just aiming for the finish line in, in your career. Wow. And that was a special moment for me. Well, let me ask you, was that the moment where you're like, all right, I'm, I'm going to leave Ted Baker and then I'm going to go to China or I'm going to change up? Or what, what, what was the precipice for, for those big changes? I'd never imagined leaving, first of all. I'd always imagined at some point that my You'd be entire, the CEO of Ted Baker? Well, I never think about it that way. I always thought to myself at some point, I, you know, I, my dying years would be there. But I, I think at that point in time, I thought, what else is there? Because if I do have to consider what the safest options are, as should anyone in in life, you never know what's around the corner, right? The stories that I'm telling you about Tebeka now, this fantastic company, this fantastic culture, for any one of your listeners who have seen or heard of the brand, what's happened to the brand over the last 12 months has been damning for me to watch because it has been, as a result of the Me Too movement, a very, very significant play of the leadership challenges at that company. Oh, wow. And I'd say some of it is... A, a fabrication, a magnification of things that didn't didn't really happen. But, you know, I look at that with very, very kind of rose-tinted lenses of that was my family, that's how I grew up, and I'm very protective over it. But I do think to myself, at some point, you never know what's going to happen. Things can fall apart in the drop of a, in the drop of a hat. And I thought at that, at that point, I should look at what the world means to me beyond wow. the company and 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 I did I, I I came back to the company with a very different mindset I had my tail between my legs um, I'd always been I'd say more of a humble character you know I could have been one of those assholes who was going to be you know I'm going to be a CEO one day and I'm going to make gotta treat else. people like assholes yeah, yeah. and I'm going to make people feel like crap on the way in and the unusual thing I think for everyone in that company was I was young James Miller but at the same point I was also their friend and I was also respected because I didn't have an ego around how or why I was doing things. I was willing to roll my hands up and throw myself right in at the deep end, learn from the best and just be a part of the team. I loved being a part of a team. And so as much as I was learning about, you know, how to make other people feel like they were leading a business and I was trying to learn my way, I loved being part of a team. I loved sitting in an open plan office. I loved, you know, the cultural aspects of it. For me, I had such fun. I had such fun learning that I couldn't understand why people sometimes didn't like to get up in the morning and go to work. Wow. So I just thought to myself, what if one day I could recreate this somewhere else? In your own organization? In my own organization or with someone else. I never really thought about it that far. I, I honestly woke up every day and I still wake up the same way. Am I going to be good enough today? And am I going to have a job that is secure at the end of the day? Wow. And I've always thought that I've never changed my mindset from the first day I woke up and earned a paycheck to now wow that's incredible all right when it, it obviously it was in that that time frame where you decided to come out 
And was that a big shift? Did that change things or did that make it harder, especially because it was this very um, uh, patriarchal brand, so to speak? Is that, yeah. yeah, it was it was tough there because I, I didn't feel like it was a a um, not, not not a safe place. I didn't feel like I was in a position yet to feel like I could not impact my career yeah. or not impact the way people viewed me. And I didn't like appearing weak and not that anyone's sexuality should make them appear weak. I didn't want pity. I didn't want fragility. I didn't want any sense of weakness to be attributed to me, my brand, yeah. and my name. And I and I came out to my friends when I was eighteen and going to college. Mm-hmm. I say friends, the handful of friends I have now, the handful of friends I came out to when I was eighteen. That's cool. I didn't to my family until I was twenty six. Wow. And the difference was that was oh God, two thousand and ten. At that point, I'd done many things in Ted Baker, but I was now focused on running their international business. Wow. And, and I was traveling the world and doing these wonderful trips that I was learning more about culture and how to now identify putting a brand into another subculture of the world. And that was great, meeting new people along the way. Um, and I got this chance to go to China. I'd been going for years, but the change was to do with legislation in mainland Chinese market. For mm-hmm. any one of your listeners who are wondering why that sounds so crazy, if you look at China, and China's really only identified with a brand since 1992 onwards when Louis Vuitton opened up a store there, the fact is that China's running on you know 3,000 mile an hour cylinders of opening the world that we all know in their country overnight almost. Overnight, and literally overnight. Literally overnight. And in order to own um, retail, which was forbidden if you were a foreigner kind of going into that market, you had to license yourself. So every brand was under license. Um, there were every luxury brand you can imagine owned by a Chinese distrib- distributor in the marketplace. You couldn't go in and own it yourself. And I was very aware of the restrictions and the impact of what would happen if I was to put my brand with a distributor in the marketplace and I never wanted to do that you hear that I just repro- I referred to Tebeko as my brand that was how I was brought up right. whatever I gave my passion to I felt like it was my own I love that when I when I was there around the back end of 2010 there was a um, a legislation change and effectively it was regulation around retailing in the marketplace and you could now go in and own your own business outright in mainland China. Wow. Now, Hong Kong only or over in the no, mainland? No, this is now mainland. So oh, you, wow. Hong Kong's super different. Yeah. So it's chalk and cheese to, to what mainland China is. And mainland China, for me, was a big, big, big goal. It was the wild west of the world. Of, 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 of the fashion industry? Of the fashion industry. Wow. So it was... It was it was not discreet in how underhand it could be. It was very, um, the undercurrent of lack of safety, regulations, protocols, um, I think test beds of other brands that I'd seen do things before. Nothing really existed. It was do whatever you want. And if you, if you succeed, you'll be respected for it. Right. So I went there and figured out a way to own and operate retail. And the, the oh. one caveat was that if you did this, you had to have someone who represented the brand as being something called the legal representative of that company. So that if something were to go wrong and legislation was to come after the company, the only person liable is someone called the legal representative of that company. And that was me. Wow. How old were you? I was 26. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, was your mind, was it overwhelming at all? Or how did you manage the level of that stress? 
I mean, I, I, I went to China and I literally was dumped on the ground with a suitcase. I met as many people, wonderful people, to try and understand every nuance of what could go wrong. And just by aligning yourself to great players who are, you know, you learn from the best and you also learn from the worst. Yeah. You can get a sense of who do I want to align with to create the perfect team. And if I had to go and set up the right kind of legal professional services, the right real estate services, the right personal people who are going to protect and believe in me and my vision, then I'll be able to somehow find my way through this kind of odd net of what a twist and turns exist in the Chinese market, which, by the way, I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. So I did. Did you speak Mandarin? Did you have did you have a leg up at all? Did you have someone there that took you under your wing immediately and was like? I I had some strong. I, well, I I actually have for 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 me one of my best friends is someone who I met first day I hit my ground running in mainland China. Worked for a company called CBRE and was my kind of buddy, my kind of partner in crime to go and unfold the kind of wicked ways of China and understand <laughs> what what could be done. It's so cool. And then I met. I met wonderful people in every frame of industry I could imagine there because you needed a lot of legal help to get through the challenges in the net of, of what China was about. It's about respect, but it's also about what you can do for China. Right. And so I was used to some degree as a bit of a scapegoat to try and um, identify how to bring in other brands to China mm-hmm. um, using the same type of uh, model and the same behaviors that we'd used. And so we were the fastest ever company to set up a it was called a foreign a foreign invested commercial enterprise uh, at the time and wow. i moved myself to china but i also remember on the first day i hit the ground there that i met the most incredible group of people and for 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 the first time it was like this explosion in my mind of oh my god i feel like i can belong here but but i'm hearing a pattern in that though james is when you jump into something it's almost like whereas a lot of people wait for the acclimatization of the culture to finally feel some semblance of belonging, right? Because it takes we it takes a while to adapt. We we're we're habitual by in terms of our behavioralism and you know our our, our emotional stability is rooted in you know where we come from, how we were raised. But I'm hearing that each time you go into these places, you 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 it's almost and and the way i look at it in terms of developing great culture there's a submission point that has to happen where you're going to submit everything that you brought to the table for the new opportunity that's had and you're going to you're going to assimilate on every level right And, and i guess there was also that understanding that i was assimilating everything that was good in my life but i was wanting to get rid of everything that was still bad in my life and i still wasn't openly honest with my family, my my larger friends, network of colleagues around who I was. Yeah. And so I still had that kind of suppressed emotion, which was tough and was getting tougher. You know, you're now in your late 20s. Can I ask you, did it benefit your work ethic, though? Um, it, it triggered my uh, harsh dedication to my work ethic. Yeah. I, I couldn't let go of it because one was supporting the other without me necessarily coming out. I was on my path without anything standing in my way to success in my career. Yeah. And it was healthy in that respect and very unhealthy for me personally because there was a a long period of time where I became so frustrated around my lack of progress in my personal life that it made me very unhappy. 
One of the, there's so many books out there nowadays about people that are just, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Um, keys to greatness or, you know, five steps to the, you know, the outliers and what they do and their routines and all that. And, and one of the, I think, common traits is this, I don't, I mean, obsession is a, is a, is a substantial word, right? But it's, it's, I don't think it's quite under there because there's a positive driven drive behind the motivation to be obsessive, right? If it's a, in a healthy way, but there, it's a, it's a trait. And it's something that you, you, you have, if, if you're going to work at that level, you have to sacrifice. I think, I mean, we, we experience, I mean, look in the SEAL teams, we, in the height of the war in 2011, that we had a 90, there was a 92% divorce rate, I think in the regular teams in mm-hmm. 97 at, at SEAL team six. And so that, that's endemic of, Hey, this is what you do. This is how you do it. And right. that's it. When was the point where you're like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to write this. I'm going to gain more control of, uh, and, and recognition of my emotional development because it will buttress and make me a better, uh, a better leader and ultimately a better CEO in the future. I wish I said, I wish I could say that that is the way that I thought back then. I, I followed my nose every day and wherever it took me, I'd make that change. So I course correct every day if I needed to. Oh, wow. But there was that one moment where I, I was coming back as, as I was doing at the beginning of my time in China where I'd come back to the UK every month. And I remember being around December the 28th, 2010. And um, I went straight back into what was my old life. And I was very, very frustrated and unhappy. And my friends kind of support me and support me enough to say, you need to tell your family yeah. how and who you are. And I did. And that was the only way to kind of rationalize what was happening because I was always living multiple versions of lives at any one point in time and letting someone see within me what version of that life they should see. Never the full me, but the part that was allowed at that point of my life. Don't most people do that on a regular basis, you think? I'm not sure I do that anymore to, not that, you, to that, that extreme. Not, not you, but don't most, don't we all kind of compartmentalize like people that aren't comfortable in their own skin or they have these um, inhibitive things that are, are heavy on their soul, right? For me a long time, it was the way I behaved when I was in the teams. I, mm-hmm. I had this moral ambiguity mm-hmm. and I pushed those limits of how I treated people and I just, you know, and so I live, I lived in this, you know, this duality of who I really was as this nice kid from Pocahontas, and now I'm this ruthless, yeah. you know, heathen, you know, who's a Navy SEAL and, yeah. and trying to manage that. But, but we all kind of live with that. What was, why did you, when did you say, all right, this is going to be the thing with my parents. This is going to free me to now be the better sense of myself. I guess it's almost like that metamorphosis of a caterpillar turning into a yeah. butterfly. I'd lived with it all my life. It's not like I walked into another phase of my life and then decided I was going to show this person one side, another person another. I'd lived with this baggage as long as I could remember. Wow. And it was the driving force around what I now could see on December the 28th, 2010 as something that was holding me back in a way that I could never, I couldn't even wake up or go another step wow. without saying something. And, and it just had to happen. I, I'd never had more of an epiphany about the fact that there were two very clear directions my life could go in. There was the forward motion or there was the complete stagnation of just bubbling around the same kind of square box for the rest of my life. 
And that was the moment. And, and wow. I guess you're right. There are always going to be people who decide what form of their personality they will show to whoever or whatever is in front of them at that point in time. But I decided that I was for the first time going to put myself first, which That's may beautiful. not be something that I had. I guess even as I'm saying it again, it's not that I was knowledge in, in all honesty saying I'm going to put myself first for the first time. I physically couldn't take another breath. I could not breathe in again without saying something. So I come to the end of the road. I had no option. Yeah. You see and read all these horrible, horrific stories about people who take their lives because they are so desperately unhappy. And I realized that I had nothing to be unhappy about. You know, I had so much good in my life, amazing friends. I had amazing options and opportunities. And it was me, and I was the cause of my own suffering. And so if I could change that, then I should. And as I was learning about taking control of everything I'd done in my career, I was applying those learnings to myself. Wow. That's a powerful moment for, you know, for, for that age, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the great challenges is, is to finally get to a, that space, right? That where you just, you're at the... I don't rock bottom is, 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 it has such negative connotation. I think it's for me, it's more of uh you just hit the end of the road, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, there's nowhere else. There's no more path. There's no, no. And the only thing that's going to enable you to pick a new path, a new direction is to free yourself in this truth. Right. 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 How, uh, how was the reaction? If I can ask, I mean, the reaction was, um, uh, it was interesting. I remember telling, um, I told my parents through my childhood nanny. It was the only thing I knew how to do. I called my best friend and I said to him, this is what's going to happen. You're probably going to get a, you'll get a phone call at some point. Just so you got the heads up. And then I phoned my childhood nanny. And I said, you're right, you've got to tell mom and dad that I'm gay. And I said, and I will go, and I'm going to go to work now and I will meet mom later on this afternoon. And, you know, sure enough, we met up and we went, we went to retail stores shopping. <laughs> looking at fashion what a beautiful thing and we spoke about it whilst we were perusing the rails of stores on bond street in london it was the only way that i knew how to connect with my mother so yeah. we ended up going through that situation which was almost laughable when i think back about it now it seems like and the perfect picture though in my mind because now knowing your mom a little bit and and how she approaches things and i and i, I don't want to even you know try and suggest that I, I know her in a deep level, but I, I understand a little bit of that. My mom d delivers love through that way in a similar fashion. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, but to be, I just, I see you guys in, in the racks of clothes and your mom just kind of dropping a, a very real critical, important question as to, do you like this? And then, yeah, you know? it was literally as silly <laughs> yeah, as that. Yeah. Like, like it was, it was actually the, it was the caricature of our life displayed out in four walls of a retail shop. And, and I, I felt obviously very relieved, but there was this kind of, I think, immense pressure on her because she felt that I had not hidden it from her, but that there were other people who knew and she could have been very supportive and wished that I had a told her earlier. Yeah. My, that, did that feel good that she, she was upset because she wanted to help? Yeah, I, I, I never wanted to set out to upset her, and I explained everything I explained to you. Yeah. Um, it was what I explained to her about the reasoning for my kind of decision to hold out until then, and that was really it. My father, I remember him saying one thing to me, and that was, 
I love you no matter what. And that was it. That's the only time we ever said anything about it. Wow. And, you know, all he wants and all my parents want for me and my friends, family. Do you think they knew? Um, I'd say, yeah. I mean, whether or not you confront the issue or not, you should always know or have an inkling. I'm sure they did. There's but, something about, I think, I don't mean to cut you off, but there's something about, you know, uh, a truth that's there, but it's still veiled. Right. And mm-hmm. that veiled truth that sits in around family often. Yeah. And, and that veiled truth, although it's we all know it's sitting there and it's out and it's there. It's just it still has so much power to it mm-hmm. because it's not out in the open where we can all process it in a, in a way to get back to the center of, right. of, of what our truth is as a family. And, you know, as, as, as you're very well aware of, you know, our family didn't handle Eric's coming out well at all. And. You know, that, you know, one of the great, you know, I'm not a regretful person at all. You know, I, I look back at things and I, and I, I wish I had done things very differently. And, and that's a, a massive one for me is, is that I wish the same thing. I wish I could have been a part of the pain that he was in and in some way, try to support him. It would have been tough because of my age at the time, but you know, you just think back, my God, what a, what a horrific, challenging fear that is to see how your yeah. world is going to change in this moment in particular with your family particularly with family i think yeah. particularly with sexuality especially the changes are the, the eras that between eric and myself have come and gone and the changes that have been displayed for people to come out today are very very opportunistic in yeah. different ways for families to deal with support and the mechanisms to actually keep you as a tight-knit unit together you know i i'd say the only thing that I love about, I think, Eric and your family is the fact that you really epitomize that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, and <laughs> That's for literally, sure. Literally and, literally and figuratively. Yeah. But but the amazing thing is that I I love you guys even more for the stories that you tell on the back end of that journey. Yeah, thank you. And, and that's the same, I think, for anyone. If you learn about the positives that can come out of any trial in your life, then they really set you up for success. Amen. All right, I, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. By the way, it's it's and it's an immense thing for, you know. I, I think one of the things about Frog Logic is that I'm you know desperate to try and do for people is to recognize that the human condition, it's very similar amongst all of us, and it, and our pain is what really unites us. And then, and when you hear other people's story of of managing pain and managing, in in whatever context it is, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We, we we draw closer to our own truth right when we see other people suffer too right yeah and I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to share those moments with other people it's inspiring I agree. So thank you all right we're gonna interrupt for a real quick second and I'm gonna have a real quick word about our sponsors who uh, just can't thank enough for participating and helping the frog logic podcast come to fruition every single week and uh I, first i want to start with on it man uh wonderful incredible uh, company out of austin texas my friend aubrey marcus i just can't thank you enough for being such a supporter of mine aubrey and and all the team at on it uh you know when you get out there and you really try to explore what human optimization is all about man you got to look at it at every single level and and on it certainly has approached that with uh vigor and on in in an incredible, really holistic way. And and they do so by producing some incredible supplement products out there. 
uh, as well as training and everything else uh, that's available online. But for me, it was really uh, two products in particular that, that made a, a substantial impact on how I went about my daily routine. First and foremost was Alpha Brain, man. This is their flagship product. This is their, their anchor and their whole arsenal of incredible products. And Alpha Brain is just uh, one of those things that I wake up every day with, you know, get out of bed, have my glass of water, uh, and, and drop an, uh, an alpha brain down and man, it just sets me up for success in terms of my, my focus, my recall ability, just my alacrity in general, uh, is enhanced. Uh, you know, once you have been around, uh, enough explosions, uh, eventually you're going to start running into some problems. Plus all the other stuff I've done in my life, all the other times I've been concussed. Um, so for me, memory and focus and the ability to stay focused uh, throughout the day is a critical aspect about what I do, right? I mean, I'm out there in front of audiences all the time, big groups of people that are uh, expecting me as a professional speaker to be able to deliver a concise, finite, and, and well-thought-out emotional message and Alpha Brain is one of the products that I use that helps me do that. And uh, it, I just, if you feel like uh, you're living in a little bit of a cloud and you feel like uh, you just can't stay focused for the entire day, then man, I, I just highly recommend, you know, you go over to Onnit's website. That's Onnit.com. That's O-N-N-I-T, Onnit.com. And you look at Alpha Brain. Take a, take a real look at it. Read all the specs they have on it. I mean, They've done extensive testing. They've got a great group of doctors that put these pro products together for, for Aubrey and his team. And, and I'm telling you, this thing works. Uh, I've been using it for about two years now. It's a, it's a great addition to, to my program, which enables me to operate in the way I do and the amount of travel I'm in. I'm always jumping on a plane, traveling from one place to the other, back and forth across the country. And so, you know, as you can imagine, as you know, travel can wear you down and and just that little boost, that little alpha brain to get me started every morning has been a wonderful addition for my life. And I just can't, can't thank the folks at on it enough for, for supplying this level of product out there. It's been a, a huge thing for me. And the other one is their, their total gut health supplement. And, and as a person that has battled gut issues from the time I got out of the teams back in the day, all the way through now, man, uh, being able to be, uh, get the, the proper stuff going into my gut day in and day out to help with all the different issues that I have has been another a huge part to where I can go through my day and know I'm not going to have the same suffering, the bloat, the bloatedness, the, the uncomfortableness, the, the bad reaction to certain foods, man. And cause another thing being on the road, man, you just, it's, virtue it's not impossible but it's incredibly difficult to eat healthy day in and day out and so for me that total gut health is is a huge addition as well as the alpha brain for me so those are the two products i highly recommend to everybody out there that uh to just check out man because the the folks that on it are doing this right they care about their products they care about the people who are using them uh, if you go over and you become a part of the Onnit family, you, you'll feel a, a part of that too. You'll feel the overwhelming commitment that they have to produce the best stuff on the market. And I'm here to tell you, it works. Uh, for uh, two years on Alpha Brain and a little over a year on the gut health, man, and it's they both made a huge impact. So head over to Onnit.com and go check out Alpha Brain and Total Gut Health or the whole slew of other products they have. They've got merchandise, clothing, 
they've got it all. They've got training, online training. Check out Aubrey's stuff. I mean, I'm telling you, this is some great, uh, it's a great company uh, run by a great dude. All right. The second one is I want to talk about uh, Wise Company. This is a, a company that uh, has really uh, put me and my family at ease because now uh, I, I know in, in terms of uh, long-term food storage and preparation, I, I, I can check that off my list. And as a man of, of many lists, right, I'm a Navy SEAL, a former CIA contractor. And so lists have always been a big part of my life. And and what are the most important lists? The lists that are uh, uh, centric to what it is you're going to do when extreme things happen in your life, whether it's a, a hurricane, a wildfire, a flood, an earthquake, um, a tornado, uh, hell man, uh, you know, an EMP if you want to go that far. If you're actually preparing for the ultimate catastrophe, which I, I do in some sense, not like I used to, but I certainly uh, think about it. I don't dwell, but I, I, I've checked off the probability of me not being prepared to feed my family. And that's really what this is about. Are you prepared to take care of your family? Seriously, go look at your cabinet right now. Go get up and go look at your storage cabinet and see what you got in there. Do you have enough food to last 30 days, to last three months, to last a year for your family? If something catastrophic happens, will you be able to survive? Um, and this is something that I, I, I just don't think people think enough because they think that if they do this, it's this ridiculous expenditure, it's unnecessary. But I'm telling you, man, the peace of mind that comes from knowing that I, I can support my family, my four daughters, my beautiful fiance, man, is just a, a, such a, a warm feeling uh, of preparedness, a warm feeling that I, I'm not going to let my family down. And that's a big one. Do not let your family down by not being prepared. So why don't you head over to wisefoodstorage.com. That's wisefoodstorage.com. Check out all their products. They're having some incredible sales right now. Go check it out from, you know, three day, one month, three week, uh, three, three months, six months, one year, man, hell go for the one year. Why not go big? Get the one-year supply for your family, right? And you, and here's the deal. you This is a 90-day uh, guaranteed money back if you don't like it. And it, and the food lasts. This is the best-tasting freeze-dried food on the market, uh, hands down. I've I've tried almost every single product out there, up to and including uh, uh, eating enough MREs to, to last me a lifetime when I was in the teams. But what it is, is this, it's great tasting and it's got this 25 year shelf life. So literally you go out, you purchase the product and then you don't have to think about whether or not your family is going to be okay when catastrophe strikes next, right? And I'm not the kind of alarmist guy, but man, all you got to do is look at the, the sequence of events that happens on a regular reoccurring basis around the world, in particular America. Hell, just had Hurricane Dorian that destroyed uh, the Abacos and a ton of the Bahamas. Had that gone 25 miles to the east, man, that would have been my home. And I was lucky because I had the products. I was able to evacuate my family to the west coast of Florida, and I had enough food if things had gone crazy, right? People out in wildfires out here in California or wherever it might be. I'm just telling you, man, it, it, why not have the peace of mind by by getting your par your family enough food to last for even just three weeks, do one month session. All right. And when you go over and you're looking at wisefoodstorage.com, 
find the product you want. And they've got great camping lines too. Hell, even if you just like to have great meals while you go out and camp, man, the, their, their camping lines are incredible too. They taste great. I put them in every one of my rock sacks when I'm out, uh, out and about, and there's nothing better than waking up in the morning with a beautiful scenery and, and pouring that warm cup of water in that package, man, and eating it right out of the package there for efficiency and taste. Man, you can't beat it. So head over to wisefoodstorage.com. If you use the promo code FROGLOGIC, you get 25% off, man. 25% off all products right now using promo code FROGLOGIC. So go check them out. That's Wise Company at wisefoodstorage.com and tell you FROGLOGIC sent you. All right, hoo ya. All right. You're in China. You've done, you're, you're conquering the wild, wild west. At what moment were you like, all right, I want to return and go conquer America now? I, or was it even that substantial? Um, it, it wasn't as substantial as that. I was loving what I was doing in China. I was still traveling the world, by the way. I was on, on like 300 flights a year, going everywhere you can imagine, everything from Saudi Arabia, Japan, all the way over Europe, Mexico, so cool. you name it. I loved it. And I loved being in, in Shanghai. But wherever I went, because I was also a resident of Hong Kong, I remember people saying to me, um, how long are you here for? And where do you call home? And I would call these places home, but realized that I was never there long enough to create the roots that actually were normal for people living in one place. So I knew that there was an adjustment that would have to happen at some point. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to search for it. I'm just going to find that when my time's up, when my time's up, I will find my way out of it. And I'd always had opportunities that came my way that never were attractive to me because I was loving what I was doing. There was only one brand that could tickle my fancy. And that, that was, was it. That was it. And, and I had met um, the team from Ralph Lauren on my journeys in Saudi at one point. And then I had an office uh, that was close to them in Hong Kong. And wow. um, I remember getting a call one day during the Hong Kong protests in October 2014. The 2014 protests. The 2014 <laughs> protests, I know. How unfortunate that we're talking about the same thing now. It's crazy to me. Yes. And I remember... Um, but I, I tell you one thing. I admire those people Oh yeah. so substantially. It's not even funny. I mean, the fact that they're willing to stand up against one of the greatest powers in the mm -hmm. world in terms of oppression, really. Right. And, and, they're, and those kids are on that street day in and yeah. out. They've been out there for a year, man. It's crazy to me. Look, I, I, I think about it from the both ways, from the kind of Hong Kong aspect and from living in mainland China. And whatever they're fighting for is worth it. Yeah, yeah I can tell you that from personal experience. That's cool. And, you know, I'd never want to go out and say that any one culture is more important than another. But if it's that important for these young men and women to stand up for the truth and what they believe in for their future and for the future of that country, go for it. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And I, and I think there's a... You know, what's nice is that, you know, mainland pulled back on one of the things they recognized on that one right. memorandum. And I think they'll be they'll pull back on some of these other ones and they'll they'll come to a resolution. I, 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 I you know, I, I just hope and pray, you know, I'm now having been a person that's been at war for as long as I was at war and went overseas so often for it. You know, I'm, I'm now I'm like, man, let's find a solution, man. Yeah. 
let's find a solution because there's a solution for this. There's a there's a real solution. So you know, hopefully they can yeah. get there. All right. So Ralph Lauren, you, you they give you a call. What was the call like? Do you remember the? I, I remember the call. I remember where I was standing, and I remember someone saying to me, "Can you get on the plane and and come meet us?" And there's a there's a role we want to talk to you about, but I can't give you the information over the phone. And I remember thinking to myself. Um, First of all, I think to myself, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Ob- ob- yeah, obviously. Yeah. I'll, I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> and, and then on the flip side, I was thinking to myself, wait, every day that I travel is a taxable day that needs to be recorded from my company, which means that wherever I go, they're going to know where I am. Yep. So it was a Thursday, or I think it was a, it was actually a Friday, and they said, can, we, can you travel tomorrow? Because if I traveled on the Saturday, I get there on the Sunday. Mm-hmm. So I remember thinking to myself, right, I've got to go into hiding. And um, I think I told two people, and um, I got on a plane, I flew to New York, I went into hiding, and I remember turning up at New York and getting into the, I think it was the Pierre Hotel, and I think to myself, this is crazy. I have no idea why I'm here. And I'm just going to put on a suit tomorrow and go and have these meetings. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what I was even interviewing for. Do you remember laying out the suit? Because I know, I know when I have got big things, I'll lay my clothes out. I'll put everything out. And I'll, you know, much like I did with my uniform before mm-hmm. I go on missions, it became this, this, this ritual for me. Did you have that kind of ritual? I mean, I didn't have the time to be able to go and prepare what I wanted to wear. So I had to make do with what I had with me. Now, luckily, uh, by that point, living in mainland China, I was already in full-on, like, tailoring mode. (laughs) I was having every single thing tailored to perfection. So I was making the suits that I couldn't buy anywhere or couldn't afford to buy. Right. So by the time I showed up there, I I looked like I'd fallen out of a Ralph Lauren catalog, albeit I made the outfit myself. Wow. So... It was very, very funny because I remember turning up, not knowing what I was walking into, exhilarated already. And um, I met with the, I think, the the leadership of Ralph Lauren, excluding Ralph Lauren the first trip. So I met with um, many of the leaders at the time mm-hmm. who were there, some of whom are still very close to me to this day. And that must have just been surreal. Surreal. I mean, at one point, I remember sitting on someone's sofa, and this was the group president of... of Ralph Lauren, and she peered over her glasses, looking at her sofa that felt like it was a mile down her meeting room, and thinking, wait, is this the right person who's turned up? Because all my life, the only thing I've really fought against outside of my sexuality is the preconceived notion of how young I was. And, maybe, and you were how old at this time? Um, 30. 29. 29. 29, yeah. And... Um, I think so I, awesome. And I remember sitting and having these amazing conversations with people at Ralph Lauren thinking to myself, wow, you guys just represent what every culture of every major brand in the world or any new brand in the world needs to be. Because I have been obsessed with that company and that brand since I was a child. Mm-hmm. I had birthday cakes that were Ralph Lauren cakes. That's cool. I had every Ralph Lauren teddy bear sweater you can imagine. I was obsessed. And so sitting there and understanding like what made these people tick and what the culture was about and how informed they were and passionate about this this brand that was nearly 50 years old was mm-hmm. inspiring. And, and I thought to myself, I don't even know what I'm really here to discuss, but I know I want it. And I wow. never wanted anything quite as significantly as I want this. Wow. And um, we got to the end of this day, and it was great. And I remember just thinking, okay, well, I'm going to go back to the hotel room. I'm going to pack up, and I'm going to fly 
now back around the world and have to make up the biggest elaborate excuse about why I've just turned up in New York City. And I got a phone call saying, okay, we need you to come back. And I got this phone call before I left the next day. And I remember thinking, why do you need me to come back? I've just arrived here. And, and they said, well, it's Ralph's 75th birthday and he's going to Europe for two weeks. And when he comes back, he needs to meet you. I thought, oh my God, how am I going to get myself for the second time back out of hiding here to New York? And I was, wow. I, and I remember thinking to myself, I've got to go to about five or six different countries over the next two weeks, or probably more actually. And I had no idea what I was coming back for, but I remember it was going to be, it was going to be a life-changing moment. Yeah. Well, you were going to meet one of the ultimate icons of fashion and not had, just not just fashion itself but branding yeah. business wise yeah. everything and, and i had two weeks to prepare for it awesome which which from a you could put me in front of that man i think any day of my life and i would know what i want to say to him really yes wow because that was the pinnacle of my mind in the world of fashion but now imagine having two weeks to prepare for something and you know, and this is in regards to your question about the outfit, I knew exactly what I wanted to wear. And I had traveled to the UK, the US, and Italy to find the remnants of the, of the outfit. The whole ensemble. The whole ensemble. So you from put Ralph together yeah. the ultimate meeting suit for Ralph Lauren himself right. in three different countries. I wore, I wore a herringbone um, uh, a sports blazer. Um, I wore a striped club collared, so very Victorian. Yep. Um, the short collared, one yeah. with a with a curve to it. Yeah. But a black and white stripe, and then I wore a black and white checkered tie from all from Ralph Lauren. Of course. And so you can imagine you've got herringbone, a black and white stripe, and you've got a a a, a, a check kind of tie. Yeah. You could have looked like you were going crazy, but I had this vision in my mind of looking exceptionally classic and at the time Downton Abbey was like the number one show on television and I thought to myself that has got to be in some way a goal here right looking like you come out of like the backward century of whenever I love it and I had the little chain the watch chain that goes through the collar of the jacket and exquisite it was it was phenomenal and and so I had this two weeks to prepare for it my hair had a little bit of blonde in it I was (laughs) primped and propped you can imagine to the nth degree and I stepped off the plane um two weeks later just to meet Ralph. And wow. I, I can't remember I can't remember walking into the building. I really can't. But I remember going into his office and meeting him and what he was wearing. And I remember sitting down and he looked at me. And he just said, I I, I want your outfit. And and I remember what I was saying, well it's he yours. He said that to you? Yeah. And I knew that in his mind he was doing exactly what I said to you at the very beginning of the of our conversation. Yeah. Which is that bemusing question mark. How and why did you put that outfit together? Because it's clearly saying something without even you saying anything before you sat down. It's clearly presenting a message. And that to me is the way that I've built my career on kind of looking at the finesse and the detail around everything about you presentation wise so that by the time you actually get your message across, you sound as though you've got the ability to lead a team but also create the vision. Because wow. the vision in the industry is about the product. It's everything. It's the product. It's everything, yeah. right? Yeah. You have to. It, you can be the most functional, have the great supply range, be able to source the best materials, yeah. put it together, get it to the store. But if it sucks and yep. nobody buys it, that's what it is. Right. And so this role was 
What did what did what did Ralph Lauren say to you after? Wow, I, I want your outfit. I, I think at one point we we just sat and had a chat. I mean, he didn't know much about uh, Ted Baker to be honest, but he knew that Ralph Lauren was positioned around Ted Baker in Europe, and um, we chatted for a while about product and about team and and culture. And he said to me, um, "What's the one thing that we'll worry about coming here?" And I think I remember saying, "Well, at some point, I'm not sure what the job is," <laughs> and, and and he told me what the job was and. And, and I said, which it, was it was president of retail for polo and kids. And it was just, I mean, you could have just said, I don't know, receptionist. And I would have said yes. Right. So I, I really did. That's didn't. the same thing I did yeah. with the Red Sox, man. It's right. the same thing. You don't yeah. really care. No. It's just, okay, just carry on talking yeah. to me and let me come and live this life it, with you. Exactly. And, and um, I remember him saying, what's the one worry you have? And I, and I said, the worry is that the reality of what I've held in such high regard all my life is potentially dispelled by the, you know, the myth. Like, like, is this really what happens behind closed doors? Is the reality as strong as the myth around Ralph Lauren and the American dream and what it represents? And I said, that's my only worry because I belong, like I belong at this company that I'm with now at Ted Baker. I, I feel that even though I'm not the ambassador in terms of being the customer, I love that company because of the people. And I said, that's what to me is most important about any move that I make because I've never worked anywhere else. I may have lived in different countries, but I've never worked anywhere else because I have to believe in the people. And that was, I think, a connecting point for us. Um, and then he said he wished he had my hairstyle because <laughs> I had a short back and sides and he said his wife would never let him cut the sides of his hair that short. And <laughs> we got on famously. And wow. I remember, I think I remember, and dare I even say this on air, leaving the office after what felt like 10 minutes but could have been three hours and going downstairs and i think i might i think i might have burst into tears wow outside 650 madison avenue and i I couldn't even believe even saying the words madison avenue that felt like it was synonymous with so many things yeah and um and i remember okay how am i going to now tomorrow go back to my other life my other lives and, yeah. and figure this out because I don't know what happens next. I, I hadn't even felt like I was interviewing for anything. Wow. So, which is, which are the greatest interviews mm-hmm. by far. Mm-hmm. And a master, a person who understands that is a master at interviewing. Right. right. It was like the chat we're having now. Yeah. yeah. And um, I remember the next uh, week or so was pretty, um, <laughs> pretty tough. I because bet. I had all these signs and signals around why I, need, why I should be moving on. And I was under enormous pressure at work and um, I felt like I was on, for the first time ever, borrowed time. Wow. And First I, time I ever felt that, huh? First time. Wow. First time. I'd never felt like I needed to extract myself from a life that I was living. Yeah. And it was like the slow crawl to the finish line. The adrenaline every day was intense. And I got a call from, from them, I want to say a week later, so you got the job. Here it is. Here it is. And I had to get back on a plane the next day from London to go to um, Shanghai. And I signed the documentation while I was there the next day. And that was it. I had pretty well, much four weeks. How was everybody at Ted Baker? Were they were they hurt? Were they was the CEO hurt, or what? Did he understand? Or because there's got to be that semblance in. Uh, the fashion industry that listen you know 
we all want to work for the best brands. We all want to work for something that's exciting and something that's powerful and something that's prominent and profound. Did they understand that or were they hurt by your decision? Probably a bit of both. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the time when, you know, please God, 20 years down the line, I'll be able to have the person that I've mentored move tell on me you. that it's their time to fly the nest and thank you for everything you've done because I wouldn't be able to do a damn thing if it wasn't for you. Wow. And that's how I felt. And it was difficult. It wasn't, an, a, it wasn't um, like I knew what I was doing. Uh, and and the lines of communication. You did know open. what you were doing or you didn't? I didn't. Well, I mean, how can you? You, you don't. You you've, don't. You don't know if it's going to work out. And it's like a divorce to some degree. Yeah. And even if you have an amicable divorce, it's still a divorce. Right. So, and it's business. And, and I never wanted to feel like I was alienating the people who've taught me everything I know. And I was so grateful for everything that I wanted to make sure that I did as much as possible to leave on great terms, which is the only way, by the way, to leave any business. At anything. Uh, anything. No matter, anything. It doesn't matter whatever's happened or gone on. But the fact is you are responsible for your own brand and the perception of you and your reputation is what counts for everything. Wow. And if you feel like you don't have the ability to um, look at the longer term view of what you could sometimes say in haste, um, I'd recommend that anyone thinks long and hard about the long term repercussions of acting in the moment. We've all done it. But when it comes to your profession, there's no turning back. You've wow. got to keep the level head and the same respect for those who you work with along the way. Wow. All right, so you leave. You, you now all of a sudden you're in New York. Now in New York. So this is 2015. Wow. So, so I get to New York. Trying to export my stuff from China was ridiculous. I I, I don't even know how, half the stuff ne never even turned up. Yeah, right. So I'm now living in New York out of boxes. Half my stuff isn't there. And all but I know, but you're working for Ralph. I'm working Ralph. for Ralph Lauren, and it was as crazy as you can imagine, and very different to the culture at Ted Baker because. The people were well, that's just the size difference must uh, have been substantial. I mean, the size difference was incredible. I, I mean, mean, they I, are the eight hundred pound gorilla, aren't they? They are. They're yeah. in the billions upon billions upon billions of dollars <laughs> worth of revenue, and there's people there that probably don't take very well to newcomers who step in at senior positions because at your age, right, at that height, right. and everything. Yeah, I had a lot to prove. Yeah, and different set of circumstances. Did you go in with a chip on your shoulder or the same way you went in at 17 at Ted Baker? Probably that way, um, which probably was, uh, in hindsight, a little naive on my part. On my part. As, as you go into leadership positions, people assume and expect that you have a level of, I think, strong will and ego. Strong will and ego. Yeah. Ego Health, is healthy. a benefit. Ego is a benefit. Okay. And it does it, it does have its pros and cons, but there is a way to develop a healthy ego mm -hmm. that you should be able to use because it will command the respect of others around you who otherwise perceive you to be a 17-year-old. Right. Right? And that level of strength is important because you're not necessarily setting out to gain friendships. You're setting out to earn respect. To lead. Exactly. And I always say in business, it doesn't matter if you don't like someone or if they don't like you. The fact is they have to respect you and you've got to respect them. And the moment you lose that, that's where there is an issue. And so, you know, I set out always with, this, with the goal of creating respect lines between myself and my colleagues. And that was, that was what I remember about my time at Ralph. I, I, I got to learn so much just from the political views of what happens in U.S. culture, especially in these kind of historical houses like Ralph Lauren. 
And I joined at a time when they were about to unfold the biggest change the corporation then had ever seen. Wow. And I was involved in the next 18 months of really unraveling what the Ralph Lauren of the future was going to be shaped for. And that was not something that I expected to kind of get on this journey. A lot of the players that I had joined with, uh, who had been there for many, many years, exited the company over the course of the next year. And a lot of new talent came in. Um, and it was an unusual um, challenge, including restructuring the business to be shaped for the future. And often when people's livelihoods um, are affected, it's a tough position to be in. It's, a, it's the worst. Change is absolutely any, any expert in change realizes that, you know, it, it is the most painful aspect right. of when you have to take uh, what the perception of culture is, right? Because some often in business, you know, the business culture is different than the business mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what's critical is those, those have, in order for business to be successful, they have to be uh, symbiotic, right? right? right. And, and, and it seems to me that a brand that's been that big, that successful over the course of that long, that because the, 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 the schism between those things can become substantial. Right. And I felt for the first time, you know, I was in a president role and my prior role at Ted Baker was an executive director role. Here I was like the uncle to these people. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had a responsibility to them that, you know, was somewhat respond responsible for putting food on people's tables at night. Yeah. And I was... It's good that you acknowledge that. That's that's one of the greatest lessons I ever learned um, was I had, I had a, a leader tell me, listen, uh, I'm not just responsible for the proficiency of the operation. I'm responsible for getting you home to your mm -hmm. mom and your family. Mm -hmm. And that was substantial to me. And that, that was the biggest adjustment at that point in my career. Because as I became a CEO in the recent years, you're their father. You're not the uncle. You're the father. Mm -hmm. And the step up is very different. So I'd say in leadership, it becomes more isolating in some specific, some specific ways the further up you go because you're expected to have a level of as i said healthy ego mm -hmm. leadership reputation and then i think answers answers you gotta have the, gotta answers, have the answers man holy cow because at least at, at a president level you know the buck doesn't necessarily stop with you i mean ultimately it's with who's it's ever with, yeah, yeah whoever the ceo of the brand yeah. or sub brand or whatever it is yeah you know? and i i mean it's so as now of a sudden you're getting the inside look at the big one of the biggest brands in the world that we've ever even known. Did you feel like your learning curve just pegged again? And, right. And is it is it a necessity for people wanting to move into the fashion industry to have access or un, at least understanding of those brands in order to be proficient? I mean, you have got to do your homework, even if you're not necessarily a personal shop or affiliation of the company or the brand you're about to go and work for. You've got to know what it's about and you've got to be able to respect why it's that way. Okay. And, and, and I'd say for that and many other types of industry, if it's not the brand or the product you're putting out, it's the culture and why you fit in somewhere. Um, because if you're trying to drum up support from the culture you're leading, it's essential. Yeah. They'll see through you if you're a fraud. Yeah. So that to me is the ultimate. Did, did you ever have that? I mean, obviously we, you know, 
there's always the stigmatisms of youth or gender or you know homosexuality or what there's these just stigmas i mean we have stigmas that i'm gonna walk in the room and i'm just some knuckle dragon you know i'm i'm a i'm a you know i'm a i'm a trained killer right and it's just like and people make all these comments yeah. all the time and i oh, actually i'm a I'm, a, I'm an artist. Yeah. I'm a hippie, actually. Yeah. You know, I can kill you. I'm a hippie. You yeah. can kill you, but <laughs> I am just a hippie, really, at heart. Yeah. And, uh, you know, did you, did you, how did you learn to confront that on a day in and day out basis? At that point in my career, it was tougher because you, you are, you are really subjected to not any position around your sexuality because at that point, it's normal. Yeah. No, no issues whatsoever. Plenty of strong leaders in that organization and many American companies that are gay, men, women, trans. In some, de in some degree, the industry that I'm in is allowing that kind of conversation to be pushed forward and progressed. But what it doesn't do is allow you to be um, positioned away from ageism. So there I was now 30 in this strong position where I was trying to run my business that I was entrusted with but also get people who were older than me, which I'd always done anyway, to believe in me as a leader. And without having or knowing my history or having the experience of working with me, that had to be earned over time. Now, it doesn't mean to say that it's going to be there on day one mm -hmm. in the right way, but I had to understand how to balance out people who had skepticism around me, a British, you know, 30-year-old, jumping in at the deep end at Ralph Lauren, and what's he done? Mm -hmm. And it's not my job to really sit there and explain my entire history the way no. I'm talking to you. No, no, you don't need to. Right. Yeah. So that makes it an awkward dynamic because you're learning around how to get away from people's stigma of age. Yeah. Um, and as I said, it's happened to me. It happens to me today, yeah. let alone, you know, what it was like for the last 15 years of my professional oh, career. Oh, man, I'm so proud. I tell everybody, like, uh, you know... The, when I talk about you, I'm always just like, oh yeah, and he's the CEO of three incredible women's brands. And they're like, and I'm like, and he's only, th you know, and they're like, how yeah. old is he? And I'm just like. Well, I'm getting on a bit now, so it's actually easier because I've always wanted to be older. So the older I get, as I, as I kind of go through each year, it's like, great, okay, now I can start to normalize my behavior because people will believe that I'm actually the age or maybe even looking a bit older than I am. Interesting, interesting. So All right. that was the toughest bit. All right, so you, you, you learn, obviously, you've got to learn a truckload about business mm -hmm. at, at Ralph Ren because of the state that they were in and what they were going through, and they're asking you to help with all these changes and implementation and all this. And you get to this space where you're like, you know what, you know, did you imagine that the opportunity to become a CEO would come that quickly? Um, no. So everything that I was looking at at my Ralph days I was trying to learn as much and and really involve the culture of the team in making our business successful. So I wasn't interested in bringing in outside people for my business at the time. I just wanted to make the people within our company stronger. Better, stronger. Yeah, yeah. And that was the most fun part of what I was doing there. That I, was the reason I joined the company. Wow. Um, with everything else that was happening in the larger Can I ask infrastructure. a quick question? Yeah. Real, I'm sorry, I hate cutting you off, but no, I just, no. this thing hit Go me ahead. profound. Would you say that that you've always had a, a, a leadership trait in you? I because I I feel it from you, and when I hear you talk and describe, and when we sit around a Christmas table or whatever, there's just an essence of 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 that focus that that emanates from you. 
Were you like? Were you always like that? Um, no, I probably wasn't. Okay. But I think over the course of putting projects together that will always say acorns to oak tree type projects, because you're leading something. Yeah. At some point, it's it's a product or an end result, and the team and the people are a part of it. And if you're leading it, you don't necessarily realize that by learning by doing, you almost become that leader. That's cool. I, I, I didn't really pick up the you know phone one day and said, "Hey, I'm ready to be a leader." Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I I think. You kind of learn and stumble and fall. And when I was in leadership roles, I've made enormous mistakes. And, you know, hopefully I've become a better leader as time goes on. And to this day, I carry on getting up in the morning to be a better leader. Yeah. And I'm, whatever I learn over the next week is going to be infinitely better than what I've learned over the last, you know, 35 years. Because at some point, every day you should be taking in as much as you can to become a better leader. That's, a, that's just, that is, that's pure genius right there. I mean, that's what the greatest leaders on in history have all said that we, we make the incremental changes and shifts every single day to improve right. on your ability to inspire others to be better. Right. right? And, and, and that goes, it works both ways upwards in terms of you going up the chain and it works the way you reflect on who's going to be part of your team going forwards too. I look at anyone who says to me, okay, you've picked me for this role. I'm going to do this, but what if I let you down? What if I don't know what I'm doing? And I keep saying, you think I knew what I was doing going into any of the roles that I've had over my professional career? Yeah, I'd say you did. Uh, I mean, you well, understood the business. You understood you'd because you'd seen every aspect of. Well, but what, it's what, about, what about the management business? of people. That's I'd say, the, it, well, it isn't. It, it it is. You're right. It's always about the management of people. But the fact is, in order to be a great leader of anything, or to be a great business professional, you don't always have to have. Tremendous experience to go and take the role that you're meant for at your next step. Interesting perspective. Like, I look at people and say, if you've got the right business knowledge in terms of seeking their answers, putting the right teams together, inspiring and motivating the team that is going to eventually create the answers with you, then you've got the ability to step up and forward into another role. And that to me is what's the most exciting part of my career that I kind of take part in. It's noticing the same traits that make other future leaders essential parts of the teams that I'm going to be working with and that are going to make my business successful because they represent exactly what future leadership is going to be. And I don't doubt that that comes with success in the end result for the business too. Wow. And, and that, that is if someone was to say to me, how do you know what you're doing when you step off the plane from China to the US? You have no experience. Well, you learn it on the job. Yeah. And if you're a good leader or a good connector and good a good worker, a good learner, yeah. all those things come. Yeah. And it's the fast track route to, you know, running a business. Well, it's so funny that you call it the fast track because <laughs> well, you're literally fast track. So, so talk just real quick, uh, not, not real quick, but take your time and, and, and as long as you want, but now all of a sudden you're at Ralph Ren, you get, you know, you're in, you're immersed. And then all of a sudden you make the decision. All right, now it's time. I'm ready. I'm going to go and I'm going to become the CEO of these brands. Yeah. I, I was probably leaving my role at Ralph Lauren a little prematurely to where I thought it was going to go, but for various different reasons. And part of my excitement around brand building was doing just that building a brand. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the work that I was doing at Ralph was, was, um, so exciting and so intriguing but I had other ambitions around taking brand and product and doing something rather unique with it and the opportunity presented itself within a private equity um, um, organization to take a company that had three amazing women's wear brands uh, and come in and develop them into something that was going to be my vision and 
those brands were very, very diverse. One was an American fashion house called Joie, uh, a behemoth in the US fashion place. And then another one was a denim brand called Current Elliott, which was only about 10 years old. And the other brand was um, a company called Equipment, one of the best names I've ever heard for a brand. And it's a 45-year-old silk fashion brand um, started by Kareem Rotfield and her husband. Um, Kareem Rotfield was the ex-editor-in-chief um, of um, Paris Vogue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it had a huge history to it. So three very different, very different brands. I mean, radically different. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And, and, and that was just really an idea around how to then take this vision of these three brands that were under one roof and create a platform for bringing in other companies eventually or starting other brands um, and creating an American fashion house out of them. And I came and kind of repositioned this company, which was now going to be called The Collected Group, as the kind of forward thinker of American contemporary fashion and um, put together a team of people who I'd either worked with in my past or, or were recruiting for the future, some of whom I'd worked with in my Ralph days. Mm-hmm. In fact, the person who really hired me at Ralph Lauren came to work with me wow. for two years at the Collector Group as well, and it kind of rounded out the circle. I mean, ironically, now the Collector Group, which is based out of LA and New York, our offices are adjacent to Ralph Lauren. How and, funny is that? Right. So when I kind of, found when Eric told me that, I almost lost it. Yeah. I was like, "Oh my god, how appropriate!" Yeah, the the, the elevator rides are rather unique on the way up, but I'm that's sure. part of the fun, part of the story. I, I bet they're 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 excited for you, though, aren't they? Oh, they are. They are. And and I I had to tell you, it was going to be a very uphill battle getting into my first CEO role. I remember when you had to have a lot of reference checks when you're getting into your first CEO role, and the kind of leader of the private equity firm that owned us told me at the very end, you know. Everyone we spoke to said you would absolutely be perfect for this type of role. The only thing they said was, given how isolating a CEO role could be, that had you not have been in a relationship, this may not have been the right time or the right role for you. And I was like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's, I'd never heard anything like that. It was so interesting. I'm probably giving too much away on here, but you know, what the hell. Yeah, what the hell. Um, Thank you. I, I think... <laughs> When I said to you earlier that I found myself becoming all-encompassed by work in my early part of my career, mm-hmm. and sometimes it doesn't allow you to switch off or put yourself and your personal life in equal weighting to your career, that was a potential danger that some people who worked with me over the course of my career would quite rightly turn around and say, if he doesn't understand how to you know, use his personal life as a bit of a, um, a, a vacation to the job, being a CEO can be very very consuming and very isolating and that may not make you a great leader oh i can't you can't be a great leader if you're isolated isolated and all encompassed and you don't see any way out of it i mean what 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 i what i understand now about being in a committed relationship is that it is such an amazing part of the dimension to my life that i never had before that it makes me a much more confident and considered leader so well, you, you got a pretty awesome guy. I'd say I, I had to say that, right? <laughs> I had got to say that. I mean, you'll you'll, you'll kill me otherwise. Um, I just hurt you. You just hurt a little bit. <laughs> but it does make a lot of sense. I I go back and I switch off. I I talk and we evaluate life. We evaluate work. We talk about all these things that affect our livelihoods, and he allows me an outlet to what would otherwise be something of an all-encompassing role in my life. Well, he's so loving, you know, and, and so I think, loving. and I think, you know, 
we all need to have that, you know, as you're managing extreme pressure, right? And, and this is the phenomenon of great leadership, right? What makes a great leader? What everybody always says, what makes a great leader? And, you know, they talk about resilience as a child or, oh, you know, right? Or, or the, you know, the, the, the magnitude of their experiences, mm-hmm. right? right? Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is I think really what makes a great leader is, is somebody that can tap into uh, a, 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 a person or, or a, a space in their heart where they can feel genuine love, they can have great empathy, they right. can they can express themselves, and and have a, an ability to process the intensity of the experience, the environment, right. in a very healthy way. Right, and I think that's what you guys have. That's and that's what I know I have on the flip side of coming home from work and thinking about what I would be doing if it wasn't for having Eric in my life. It would be a different obstacle to I'm overcome. Sure. So, you know, I don't think I could be a, a tremendous kind of leader for my guys and my culture if it wasn't for him. Yeah, wow, that's so that's such a nice thing to say about my brother. I really appreciate that. I know he loves you to death and we love you to death, brother. I appreciate that. Um Now that you've been operating at at the collective brands for Two years now? Are we two years? Coming now? up to three. Three in March. What? Yeah. We're yeah. Three in March, so we're two and a half. We're two, are we two and a half? Yeah, yeah we're two and a half. Right. Yeah, we are yeah. two and a half. All right, so we're yeah. two and a half. And, and, it's, and, it, and now, you know, it, what you've done, I mean, because these brands have been around a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the gene company, not, not yep. so long, but, you know, certainly, you know, equipment. And, yeah. I mean, that's a long period. And, you know, to come in and, and pr- pr- position especially in a world where retail is under assault, mm-hmm. right? Especially in a world where there's so many choices. And, you know, when you, you go in and you dig in, you know, do you ever, did you ever go, my God, what did I get myself into? Oh God, all the time, all the time. But the grass is never greener on the other side. It's just a different shade. So <laughs> like when I think about what everyone else is going through in their day-to-day lives, it's just a different set of chaos. And so I never for one minute believe that what if I sell myself up for? It's not what I believe I should be doing. It's okay. It might be a bit different to what I thought I was going to be doing, but isn't everything. And that's the challenge. That's a different set of learning experiences. Oh my God. I spent, I spent the first 18 months of my career here restructuring and rebuilding the infrastructure and the ability to take the company forward before I even thought about what design and vision could be for these brands. It was team, it was day-to-day slogging around, trying to make sure that we were future-proofing the business for tomorrow. And Future-proofing? Future-proofing. Uh, future-proofing, yeah. okay, that's a yeah. great term. And and that was something unexpected, because as you said, these brands have been around for a while. Why would you need to do so much infrastructure and groundwork? And, and that was part of the unknown when you go into any new, new territory. You know, you've got to build the correct infrastructure to thrive. Right. For you and for your team and for the brands. Awesome. Um, what, you know, uh, how would you assess the, the current fashion industry? Where is it? I mean, and, and I know these, these are, this is a massive question, right? But as it relates to your, your brands and, <clears throat> and are you optimistic about it? Or are you, are you excited about the opportunities that you guys are now generating with this new yeah. energy? 
I mean, fashion. Maybe it'd be as, stupid if you said, no, and I hate it. It sucks. We're going to be miserable. I mean, fashion as an industry is never going away. It's just always going to be evolving. And the pace of the evolution is always going to speed up. So if you're ever going to be the one person to turn around and say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to conform to that trend or I'm not going to conform to that new technology, then, you, you know, there's no point being in the business at all. Period. Because it's that, already left you behind. Exactly. Exactly. I've got some tremendous board members, and one of them is the chief publication officer and the chief business business officer for Condé Nast. Oh wow! And she says every day she wakes up and her <laughs> pressures are, I think it was Facebook and Google, right? And, and those are not the pressures that Condé Nast as a business ever had. Go back to the '90s and the '80s, Nothing. and yeah. you know the publications are still around, but you know their advertising headwinds are Facebook and Google. Yeah. And when you're thinking about what they own and how they communicate with their customers and these networks every day is different and every new platform that will come and go will challenge a new society and a new generation of people to think about how they interact with an industry like fashion differently right and i think about that the same way that i look at these three brands that i look at ralph lauren that i look at ted baker it, it is to do with how you evolve and adapt the conversation wow. and forget the product for a second because if you don't look at it from a 360 degree vision of it is the communication tool of each customer that you're targeting, the one that you've had for 10 years, the one that you've never had. Mm -hmm. And then how you grow that business globally, because one market can never, ever be the true end result for what you're trying to deliver in fashion, especially with how quickly you can globalize a brand these days. Wow. Right. You can have a brand that can somehow you know, rise like a matchstick because of the world of Instagram and the kind of infrastructure that technology gives you these days. Well, I mean, Jana is a big fan of all these fashion bloggers and now these yeah. women and, and men, they're, they're all of a sudden, next thing you know, they're getting, they're getting a run in, in Nordstrom's or, right. you know, and, right. and they're, they're not even from the fashion world. They're just right. fashion bloggers. And, and, and so it's, it's evolving. I know that yeah. must must make you you know smile at that but i mean it, it that's, makes the, me laugh. that's the reality of it though and okay. that's con new competition and fashion there's a lot of i guess there is some, some historical snobbery around people who get involved in fashion who don't know how to create a garment well the fact is that i don't draw right i know exactly what i'm looking for when i look at a product and what i'm looking in terms of who the vision is for someone who's gonna be wearing it and what may not work to what may work um but at some point ralph lauren doesn't draw Victoria Beckham doesn't necessarily draw, right? Mm -hmm. It's the vision that you've got for the end result. And fair play to the bloggers and fair play to the people who want to give it a go because why shouldn't they? Yeah. And no so one, it makes it great. That's what makes the challenge that yeah. much more fun. And, yeah. you know, I do collaborations with other brands. That's not to say that I won't do one one day with a blogger. Who, who knows? But I think the way that you assess why a product needs to touch on the heartstrings of someone who's got so many options around them these mm -hmm. days, infinitely more than they ever have, has got to be part of the conversation. So you've got to try and you've got to differentiate and you've got to really make sure that you stand out from the crowd if you do have a message. So it's not just about the product, it's just about you know, whether it's sustainable, whether or not it has an ethical message in society. What does it say that goes beyond just looking like a great kind of item of clothing? Because those days have changed dramatically and they won't go back to being as simple as they were. Wow. All right, my last question for you is why is why are our clothes so important for people and what should people that are struggling with that identity or that confidence, what should they think about when they think about 
reaching out and saying, you know what, because I'm, I'm going through this process right now. And, you know, you guys laugh at me, but it's true, man. I've, I've been wearing the same outfit for 25 years. And, and now that John is in my life, it's like, you know, I got, I had my first pair of skinny jeans on the other day. I, I <laughs> you know, I, I, she bought me this beautiful, this beautiful, you know, J crew suit, modern suit for Sean and Katie's wedding. And, and I'm feeling the change in me. I'm feeling more mature in my look and I'm, you know, and it's a, but what are you, what advice do you give to people that aren't sure about what it can do for them? I think, first of all, fashion is very subjective. So in terms of, let's say your, your skinny jeans, they were, they were maybe slim. I wouldn't call them a skinny. If you want to, if you really want to see what a skinny looks like, but I will tell you, they're probably the most sophisticated pair of slacks that i've seen you in yeah in since i met you yeah and and to me when i look at the way that that kind of silhouette showed up on you what does it say to someone like me well for someone in the industry it says this guy has a frame he takes care of himself he is smart and he puts himself together with thought and sometimes it's not that that character may not it's the fact that they are wearing something that potentially dates over the course of a decade maybe Mm -hmm. right and whether that's the silhouette or the color or the you know the item that the fact is that everything changes, everything evolves. You know, the hair on our hair gets the hair on our head gets longer, the hair on our chin may get grayer. The fact is that everything is designed to change. And if you just try and keep it the way it was, you're only ever gonna somehow look as though you've slightly missed what the opportunity was to kind of evolutionize yourself with everything that's changing around you. So if the fact is that you like to change your pants every day, then why not? I mean the fact is that it's designed to reflect you and how you feel. And sometimes pushing yourself that little bit further is part of the fun. And having people who can help you on that journey along the way is also part of the fun, especially if it's to do with a relationship. You know, I'd say that that pair of slacks is not just about the fact that it makes you look a little younger and gives you a shape on, you know, the bottom half of your figure. The fact is that it also tells a story about your relationship with Jana. Yeah. So there's so much more to fashion than just the idea that whatever you're going to put on is going to keep you warm and get you dressed for work or dressed to go out for dinner or you go to the grocery store. It's the journey and the relationships that you have with yourself, when you have with other people, that you have with the designers and the brands that you may believe in. And all those interwebbed networks that you're talking to aren't as basic as just, oh, it's a fashion item, I'm gonna go out and buy it, and you know who cares what it looks like? They tell a story. And so if you think about it that way, everything that you buy, everything that you interact with has got to be able to tell a continuing story about you, your life, and the journey you're on. I love you so much, man. <laughs> I love you too. Thank you. You're very welcome. This was not as uh, painful or... or um, I think scary as maybe I thought going in. Wow. I appreciate that. <laughs> I just, uh, you, you, you are one of the most special people I've ever met in my life. And I think, uh, anybody that has the opportunity to work with you or for you is, is a wonderful opportunity. And just the fact that you're my brother means the world. I love oh, you so I appreciate much. It. I love you too. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>